Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, all right, so this morning as I was getting up to come here and scraping ice off of my windshield, I was just thinking in my head, we're better than this. What? We, why don't we just have a written rule or a standard rule, unspoken rule, that if, it's, if there's ice on your windshield, let's just not meet till 2.30. Let's, why don't we just do that? We'll, we'll talk about that in the elder meeting, see if I can get that passed. Because it's just too cold to get up in the morning. And not, let's be honest, none of us can drive in this anyways. All you people who lived in Alaska and Minnesota, you just come pick us up. That, we'll just have a, a system that if there's ice in the windshield, that we just kick it in. Well, let's pray this morning before we get into what we're going to be talking about in Jude today. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word. We thank you so much that it is clear, that it is understandable, that it is not for the elite. It is not for the clergy only, that it is for all of us. And we have a Bible in our hands as an outrageous gift Father, and and even on top of that, more outrageous is that your spirit dwells within us to enlighten us, to understand it. But we can never deserve that, ever. We thank you so much for the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And as we look this morning at defending the faith, at contending for the faith, let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start this morning off with a flash poll real quick to just get a gauge of where we are. So if you came out of a Presbyterian tradition, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand right now. Any former Presbyterians in here? All right, we got a a few. Okay. If you came out of a Baptist tradition, any kind of Baptist, put them up there. Okay. If you'd rather not say, go ahead and no, you Baptists, don't you vote twice. Don't you? And I... Okay, I can make that joke because I graduated from a Baptist seminary. Evan and I both just actually graduated from Baptist seminaries, uh, and we work here. But that wouldn't have happened 40 years ago when Tomball Bible Church was formed. In 1975, 1976, I went to our resident historian, Bill Berman. He told me the history. And I was like, well, in that era, there is no way that Evan or I would have been hired to work here at Tomball Bible Church for two reasons. The one, primarily, we weren't born yet. And I've heard that it's difficult to pastor in that kind of setting. Uh, but the first one, uh, the second reason, really the bigger one, is that nobody at that church, this church at that time, would have considered anyone from either of our seminaries because they were so liberal at the time. The Baptist tradition and the, the Presbyterian tradition went through some dark periods of, of liberalism from which, since they have come out. In 1973, the, the Presbyterian Church of America, PCA, split off from mainline Presbyterianism, 1973, over issues, not trivial issues, over issues of the inerrancy of Scripture. The Presbyterian Church in America at the time had just decided the Bible has, is full of flaws. You can't really, you can just do whatever you want with it. And they rejected the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. And so then the conservatives within that tradition decided we have to leave. And only 250 churches Presbyterian churches went with them in 1973. And there's, there's 47 Presbyterian churches in Houston proper alone. So that means a fraction of the congregations in that tradition went with the truth in, 19, in the 1970s. And the Baptists, they had a similar problem. 1979, they realized our seminaries are pumping out liberal Preachers and pastors and teachers and leaders who don't hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, who don't believe in the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the atonement of the cross, that it satisfied Christ, that it satisfied God, Jesus' blood stayed on the cross. They, they, they don't believe any of that. All that stuff is optional and or jettisoned. So they had to do this thing that they call the conservative resurgence. 
And they had this master plan where they come in and kind of try to turn the ship around of the entire convention. And they succeed by, by year 2000, they have a new doctrinal statement. They have, they've, they've kind of purged the seminaries. The seminaries were so bad. It happened really, it got really bad in the 1950s. It all started about a century before that from liberal theologians and their teachings from Germany kind of coming over this way. Uh, but in 1950 is when all, everything starts kind of to crumble. 1950. This is the seminaries are going to pot. They're just liberal bastions of filth. And 1950s, when Leave it to Beaver's on TV, you can teach Sunday school off Leave it to Beaver. And it was on TV and our seminaries were just crumbling. 1994, when the new president comes to overtake or to take the position uh, of president at the the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, it's like 5,000 students. He gets a knock on his door. He's a conservative guy and nobody likes him. He gets a knock on his door from his, from his uh, receptionist who comes in and says, hey, by the way, I, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a lesbian commitment ceremony going on in the library and one of our faculty members is overseeing it. In 1994, at the Southern Baptist Seminary, that's what it's called, the Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, of the, at 1994, that's what, that was happening on campus. And I had a friend who did a lot of ministry and stuff in Fort Worth in the 90s. And he said, if anybody ever applied to, to serve or be a volunteer and they were from Southwestern Seminary, which is where I went, we just rejected them straight out front because we didn't know if they were going to be gay or if they were going to teach the truth or if anything. They, we, just, we just knew that anything coming out of there was, was bad. Not just like bummer, but like wrong, errant, heresy coming out of there. And, and he's, so there was no way that Evan and I being in that era, if we were to go back to the 1970s when the church started, they wouldn't have hired either of us because we would have been imbibing of that theological liberalism that was happening in the day. And DTS, the Dallas Theological Seminary, is kind of a, 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 a repercussion of those things happening. You kind of get the, the defectors from Presbyterians and from Southern Baptists, and they come and they make DTS at that and, and during that era as liberalism is creeping in, so much so that in the 1980s, DTS is one of less than 10 seminaries in the continental United States that believed in the inerrancy of scripture. Less than 10 in the 1980s. So if you were alive in the 1980s, that means that there was only like there are eight or so seminaries. There's 11 seminaries in Houston right now, like that have buildings. That was, that was going on at the time. And so that's, that's where this whole Bible church movement kind of comes from because of the liberalism that had crept into these major denominations. Why do I tell you all that? It's because Jude is a book of the Bible that is about the war for the truth. And that we as Christians, the people of God representing him on earth, have always been and will always be in a war for the truth. It is endless. It is endless. There is a constant unrelenting barrage against biblical orthodoxy. There always has been and there always will be. Jude is what is called an epistolary sermon. And all that means is that it's a sermon in in letter form. So Jude's going to preach to us. And we need to get preached at about this defense, this contention for the truth. We need that. what What is Satan's first lie in the garden? Did God really say? His contention his, he contests the truth of what God has said. So I know God has spoken. I know he's revealed things to you, Eve. But did he really say 
He doesn't come at her from some angle with horns out and a, and a tail and a pitchfork and say, come to me. He says, did God really say? That's what he goes after. So this war on the truth has been since the beginning. To be a Christian is to be a warrior for the truth. That's who we are and that's, that's what we have to do. And there's two attacks, really two fronts for this, this war on the truth. There's outside and inside, right? Interior, exterior on the truth. Outside Attacks on the truth are certain. They're obvious. We know them. Gay marriage, abortion, the the homosexual agenda, the transgender agenda, um, atheistic agendas throughout the permeating from schools all the way to governments to just how we think. They're they're obvious and we know them. The moral revolution is not a disguise. It's not a secret. Uh, But those are outside. Those are exterior attacks on the truth. We can see them. Certainly there are threats. But God has a history of kind of quelling those exterior threats to the truth pretty powerfully. So let's take this one issue, abortion. So abortion, we know, is, as far as attack on the truth, we know it's an attack on life, but what it says is that that's not a human life. There's lie number one, and that life is not worth protecting. Number two, there, that there's no sanctity to human life. We decide when and where human life is valuable, right? So that's an attack on the truth revealed in scripture, right? Now, abortion in the United States is a capitalistic endeavor, is it not? We know there's government subsidies and all that, and, and we do wage correct war on that through the legislation systems. But it's a capitalistic endeavor, meaning that if people don't show up to have the procedure done, then they start closing their doors, right? Just like Wendy's or McDonald's. If you don't show up and buy something, then eventually they run out of money and they close. That's theoretically how it could work. Has God ever done something? Has he ever shut down a paganistic, heathenistic lie against the truth that's a capitalistic endeavor. Has he ever done that? Yes. Acts chapter 19. Demetrius, the idol maker of the, of the uh, false deity Diana in the city of Ephesus, incites a riot in that city because he, one day he looked up and realized nobody's buying idols. I'm a silversmith that makes idols. Now nobody's buying them because this guy Paul is teaching them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're getting converted, they're rejecting idolatry and nobody's buying these things. So he incites this big rebellion and this big hoo-ha and Paul gets yanked out of the city and this is a whole big problem because he realized one day there's not a dollar to be made selling a lie because God used his gospel to penetrate the hearts of men and women and then nobody spent their money there. So it's dried up. So God can and will do those kinds of things. And we've seen that. We'd be a part of that. The same could happen today. But the most devastating attacks to the truth come from within. The most devastating attacks on the truth always come from within the parameters of those who say they are on the side of truth. That's always what gets you the most. Because in a battle, in a war, we can forgive cowards and we can forgive weaklings. And you know what? We can ultimately, we can end up forgiving our enemies relatively easily after enough time passes, but traitors we have a problem with. I haven't met an American male named Benedict. Have you? Benedict Arnold, Revolutionary War, he's going to turn coat and go to the British side. And he's, his plan was to completely just turn over West Point. He was a general, just going to turn it over to the British and join their side. So there's not a lot of Benedicts. There's a, apparently there's a British actor named Benedict, but he's British, so he doesn't get it. So it's okay for him to be named that. But, but there, is, there is no one, I've never heard of anyone named Judas. Never, I've never heard of anyone 
named Judas. Even the secular world knows the name Judas. On sitcoms and movies and just interactions, they know, oh, you Judas, if you ever stab him in the back. It's synonymous with traitor because it wounds us so deeply when somebody who says they are aligned with the truth and they promote the truth are actually lying. That kills us. That, that wounds us deeply. And that's, that's why Satan's, in his opposition that he's been waging since his own fall from grace, his most devastating blows to the truth have always come from within the people of God. Always come from within those parameters, inside those borders. That's where you can do the most damage and wreak the most havoc. So he's always been about that. Just think of Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel is impervious to the nations that threaten them when they are obeying the word of God. When they rightly uphold the word of God and the king is enforcing it in the land, no nation can touch them. No, and it starts even just from Joshua. They go out and they fight a battle. They lose. And he's like, why did we lose? What sin was there? And they go and they find Achan and he had taken stuff from Jericho. But they're impervious to attack if they're obedient to the truth. But when they say, you know what? I think we should intermarry with the nations. I think we should incorporate a little bit of Baal worship. We should build some high places. We should carve for us an Ashtaroth idol. Then they get wiped out. Then the Midianites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites come in and wipe them out. They take them over. They do whatever they want with them. Because the interior rebellion against the truth is what devastates. So Jude is about that. Jude's going to deal exclusively with this category of, of person. This, these, they're called apostates. Apostates, you think false teacher, false prophet. Think that when you hear the word apostate. And what an apostate is, is someone within the borders of the church, in our context, within the borders of the church, but they do not teach or believe the essential truths of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But they're within the borders, masquerading. That's what Jude is going to be all about. Jude's going to describe them in verse 5. He says they're unbelievers. That's what really boils down to. He compares them to the people who don't believe in God after leaving Egypt. They're unbelievers. In verse 8, he calls them three things. They defile their bodies, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the true God. In verse 10 and 11, he says this is what they do. They make themselves the authority. They are the authorities to be answered to. In verse 16, he calls them grumblers, malcontents, and loud-mouthed boasters. That's, what, that's the identifiers of these people. Jude's going to show us their general character, their general message. We're going to see that. And ultimately what it boils down to, they reject all authority and they covertly undermine the truth of God. That's what they do. That's what these apostates are. And Jude's message is that to his, the people that he's writing to, he says, they are here. They are among you. They are hidden reefs in your love feast right now. In verse four, he says, they have crept in unnoticed. They're there. So he's saying that they're there, but there's been a lineage of messages saying they're coming, going back to Jesus in the New Testament. Even further back in the Old Testament, but the New Testament goes back to Jesus. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John all say they're coming. Look out for them. They're coming. This is what they do. This is what they say. This is who they are. They're coming. Jude says they're here. Let's look at these warnings. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, this is the early age stages of Jesus' ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, this is what he says to those who are listening. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. This is verse 15 of chapter 7. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So what is the first thing that he say? He says, they are coming. Beware of false prophets who come to you as what? As wolves. As wolves in and amongst the flock. And what do, what do wolves do to sheep? Wolves don't merely just mislead or confuse sheep. They devour them. They rip them limb from limb and leave their carcass on the ground. That's what wolves do to sheep. They're not just there goofing around. And then he says, this is how you're going to know who they are. You're going to know them by their fruits because a healthy tree can't bear bad fruits. An apple tree can lie all winter long about what it is. But when spring comes and there's apples, you know, that's an apple tree. Or if harvest time comes and there's no leaves and there's no fruit, you know, that tree is dead. It can't be subvertly alive. You can't have it either way. So they're going to be known by who they are. These are their identifiers. What they produce identifies them. You can't hide what you produce. So he says, look at that. That, that, This is coming for you. Jesus says that before he's even on the cross. Paul says it, Acts chapter 20. Paul warns of this in Acts to these elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He knows he's leaving Ephesus. He's never going to come back. He's pretty sure he's going to die or be imprisoned before he can ever come back to see them again. So he gathers them up and he gives them one last exhortation. So he's doing to these guys. In Acts 20 verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. You know what Paul says to these guys? He says, wolves are coming. I know it. When I'm gone, they're going to come. He says, guard the flock. Wolves are coming. Then he also says something else that we see. He says, you have to watch inside the flock. From among yourselves, those will arise who twist the truth. You're going to have to watch the sheep too. Because they're going to rise up with a different version of the truth with a little bit corkscrew perspective. And you're going to have to watch them. You elders, you guard this. This is what you do. Because this day is coming. He says, look within your own walls. Look within the bounds of the church. And do you you remember, we were talking about Ephesus earlier. This is Ephesus. You notice he doesn't say in this entire speech to these elders, either before where we read or after where we read, watch out for Demetrius and the idol makers. He doesn't say, hey, watch out for the priests and the priestesses of Diana. Because they're obvious attacks on the truth. He says, what's going to kill you is coming from within your own walls. So watch that. You have to keep an eye out of that. And he carries his message over to 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul in his last letter 
to his greatest disciple, who is the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says to him in these waning words of Paul's ministry in life. In chapter four, verse one, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is going to judge. Remember that. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's what they will do. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So he says to this pastor, Timothy, at the church at Ephesus, hey, there's a day coming where nobody's going to stand for the truth. They're going to want other things. They're going to be, they're going to have itching ears, wanting them to be satisfied by people who cater to their own perspectives, the thing that they want. So you stand for the truth because there's going to be a plethora of teachers who is going to, who are going to speak right to what they want and they will cause them to wander from the truth. So you speak the truth. These, they'll get pastors who cater to what they already want. Have you ever wondered why prosperity gospel preachers are successful? They're successful because what they're offering is what carnal people want. Every unsaved person in the world, all they want is health and wealth and power and status and happiness. That's what they want. So when you're saying that's what you get, then you get hordes of unbelievers because that's not the truth. Paul says previously in this chapter, he says, hey, Timothy, suffer hardship with me. That doesn't draw a big crowd. But Paul, he says, there's gonna come. They're gonna come and they're not gonna endure sound teaching. And in verse four, what are they gonna do? They're gonna turn the people away from listening to the truth. So Timothy, verse five, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's Paul's words to this pastor at Ephesus who's in the thick of it. And then Peter has the same message. First, second Peter chapter two, verse one through three. That's what he says about these false prophets. Verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. You see what they're gonna do? This is what Peter says. These guys, they're going to bring in destructive heresies in verse one. In verse two, they're gonna blaspheme the truth. And in verse three, they're going to exploit you with false words. Lies exploit the people. They don't build in and invest in and love the people. So Peter says, this is coming. There will be false prophets who come. There will be apostates who come. So be ready. That's the charge. That's what the message. And John kind of caps this off as we continue moving towards Jude in our Bibles as the way it's laid out. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
but they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. So John's saying, people are going to go out from, a, from your midst denying the truth. And you need to know that not everybody who shows up on Sunday morning is standing for the truth. You need to know that. And when they leave, you need to know that's a good thing. Because they weren't really of us. That's why they went out from us. That's what John caps this off saying. So Jude says, the apostates are here. That's his message in the book. We're going to see in the coming weeks that Jude says they are here. They are in your love feasts. They've crept in and you haven't noticed they're here. And this is what they look like. That's what he's going to do. And he's not going to make any bones about it. The defense for the truth is not easy. You're not going to become a rock star, teacher, pastor, leader by defending the truth. (laughs) It's going to be hard, but we must do it because we live in a postmodern culture. And what that means is that truth is completely relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. They have their truth. It's everybody's truth. Everything is truth. And tolerance is the key and the king characteristic that everybody must have. That's the culture in which we live. And Jude's message is desperately needed today. One commentator, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, said it like this. He said, Jude's message of judgment is especially relevant to people today. For our churches are prone to sentimentality, suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. Jude's letter reminds us that errant teaching and dissolute living have dire consequences. And he hit it on the screws with that one, that, that you have an inadequate view of love. You think love is, what you're doing is killing yourself, but that's great, that's your thing. That's why I love you in that. But that's hateful. Doctor says, hey, you keep walking down this road and living the way that you're gonna live, you're gonna contract diabetes. But I won't say that to you because I love you. That's a bad doctor. You have to give me bad news, otherwise I'm gonna die. That's, that's real love. So that's what Jude is pushing us towards. And, and there's, there's this trueness that there's an inseparable reality, an inseparable connection between character and belief, right? There's an inseparable reality and nature between doctrine and character. Christian living and Christian thinking cannot be segregated. They're inextricably linked and have been forever. Second John is all about that. that that's what the whole short little epistle is about that the, the, the love that you have come, flows from the belief that is built within you. You can't separate that. You can't live rightly if you don't believe rightly. And it's also true that we can never exhaust the list of heresies available to us today. That would be like saying you got to the end of the internet. We're never going to exhaust that list. So we don't focus on the lies. We focus on the truth. So that when a lie comes across our screen, we immediately know what it is. And Jude's going to say the, the heresies that are out there are so variant and so teaching. Look at their lives. Look at how they live. Their fruits. What does Jesus say? This is how you will recognize them. You will know them by their fruits. So Jude's going to show us what their lives look like. That's how we do it. Because even a baby Christian can point out and single out a sinful lifestyle. It's, it's obvious, plain as day. Anybody can see that. But then, you, then there's just the age-old adage. Yeah, but, but doctrine divides. And I'm all about unity. 
And doctrine divides. So let's not talk about that. Of course, doctrine divides. You bet it divides. And we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus ever going to divide? Look at Matthew 25. Look at this from the word, the mouth of our Savior. In Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And what is he going to do with them? And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's skip down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It sounds like Jesus is going to divide at some point. And that word that we read in there, separate, the Greek word is aphorizo or aporizo. It comes from where we get our word horizon. It means to define, to segment. That's what a horizon does, doesn't it? When you look forward, you have a line going across your vision that says that is sky, that is earth. That's what a horizon is. It's where they meet and they don't blend. There's a division there. So if, if Jesus says that, what is this based on? What is this division based on? It's based on correct belief. He says it clearly in John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So if that day is real where the son is sitting on the throne and the nations are gathered to him and that day is real, our Bible say it beginning to end that that day is very real then we had better be correct on what we call the truth. We have to understand what we call the truth because you got to think, would you unite with just anybody under the guise of faith? Would you unite with somebody who says, I think salvation is by works. I think I do good things and I'm empowered to do good things. And that's what saves me. I can't unite with that because Paul can't unite with that. And Peter and John and James, they can't unite with that. What about somebody who says, well, I think the the appropriate family structure as we see laid out is polygamy. I want to have lots of wives. I can't unite with that because I see Genesis 3 or Genesis 2 and it doesn't teach that. So if we're going to draw the lines somewhere, we're going to draw the lines at all, then let's not be arbitrary about it. Let's look and see where the Bible has drawn the lines and let's trace those lines. Let's not just say, well, I think I'm going to draw them here and that's, that's what I'm going to kind of do. You don't get to do that. If you're going to draw lines at all, then we have to go to a source that is infallible and inerrant. The faith once for all delivered to the saints is what James calls it. So if we're going to do that, we have to do it biblically. And I'm all for Christian unity. We all should be for Christian unity. Paul says to seek that. We seek unity amongst brothers and sisters, but never at the expense of the truth, because that's not unity. That's lying. That's me saying what you believe is okay and what you believe is gonna get you to heaven and it's not, and that's lying and that's hateful. So I can't do that. That's why that's the whole idea of being in the world and not of the world. Charles Spurgeon in in Victorian England, 1850s, when these German theologians are writing this stuff big time, he's having to deal with this and this is what he said about it. 
He said, it is our solemn conviction that where there can be no real spiritual communion, there should be no pretense for fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. There's no way around that. That if I know that what you're teaching is wrong and I say, yeah, let's be, let's unite and let's do things together and let's say everything's okay, I'm participating in sin. So we have to contend for the faith. And that ties into our church's mission statement. Discipleship, making mature disciples. I can't disciple someone in any sense of that word if I don't come down somewhere doctrinally. If all I say is like, be good, be nice, read your Bible, you did that, great. Thanks for coming to Chick-fil-A today. Let's see you later. It's gotta be more than that. I have to come down on say something. I have people to say, no, you can't talk to your wife like that. You can't model that in front of your children. You can't lie on your taxes. I'm gonna have to take a stance on something. So doctrine divides, but it divides in a biblical way. And we are, that's our mission is to draw people into the sheep side. That's what we do. That's, that's why we're here because we can't disciple someone effectively apart from the truth. That's why Paul doesn't separate 2 Timothy 2.2 from 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But he doesn't separate that from verse 15 in that same chapter. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. You can't do one without the other. We make disciples accurately according to the word of truth. That's what we want to do here at Tombaugh Bible Church. Because we have to take a stand for the truth. The greatest threat to the truth comes from within and always has and always will. It will always come by those who claim to be Christians or claim to be the people of God. A screaming atheist saying God is dead and you're stupid for believing in God is a minor threat to the saints, to those who are convinced of Christ. Minor threat. Still a threat. But what's a major and a deadly threat is a false Christian coming alongside you, open Bible. Did God really say? Did he really mean that? That can't be. Or even worse, like Satan in Matthew 4, tempting Jesus when he says, Jesus, it is written. And he quotes him the verse from Psalms. That's even more dangerous. So we have to know this truth. We have to contend for this truth. And that is the message of Jude. We have to become expert swordsmen. There's no other way. And ultimately what we do, we engage in this fight, not because we want to prove ourselves to be so theologically elite that everything that is liberal and everything that is weak and just flighty is beneath us. And we are better than that. That's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is the glorification of God. And that happens through the salvation of lost souls. Because the truth is on the line. You don't get saved by a lie. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. What is the source of their condemnation, of their perishing? Refusal to love the truth. What does Jesus say sets us free in John 8.32? The truth 
The truth sets you free. So we contend for the truth and we wage war on the truth because in conclusion, the reality is that we are always one generation away from the truth being gone forever. From losing the truth at Tomball Bible Church, we are one generation away. Let me illustrate that with Judges. Go to Judges, verse, chapter 18, verses 30 and 31. I'm gonna read these verses and tell you what's going on. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Let me tell you what's going on. Judges 17, there's this priest, this Levite, just kind of wandering around looking for work. And he's just like, I'm a Levite. This is what I do. I need a job. He comes across a wealthy guy named Micah. Micah just decided I'm going to make a bunch of idols with all this gold that I have. And I'm going to build a temple here and I'm going to have worship. Hey, you're coming along. Do you want to work for me? And be a mercenary kind of rogue priest? And Jonathan says, yeah, that sounds good. So he abandons everything that's written, the first five books of the Bible, which they had at the time, and says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll I'll be the priest for your idols here. And he does that. And then Micah, he gets raided by the tribe of Dan and they come, they take all his stuff and they say, hey, priest guy, we're gonna take all these idols with us. Do you wanna be our priest? We're gonna go back to where we're from in Shiloh which is where the Ark of the Covenant was at the time. And so this guy, Jonathan, formally introduces idol worship in Israel that exists until they all get exiled out at the end of the Old Testament. And who's his grandfather? Moses. Exodus chapter two, verse 22 says that this is Moses' grandson, And we just read it right there. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. And this truth was so deplorable to the people of Israel, to the scribes making copies of the Old Testament that they changed the name from Moses to Manasseh. A lot of word, a lot of letters in our language change. It's a flick of the wrist of, of, of an accent mark in Hebrew because they were so embarrassed that the grandson of Moses was the one who introduced formal idol worship in Israel. He's the guy who made it an institution in Israel. So if Moses' grandson can get that far away from the truth, then certainly it's possible for my grandchildren. Certainly it's possible for us. Certainly it's possible for all those kids across the alleyway right now. So we contend for the faith knowing that we're one generation away and that it's not because we want to be better, smarter, wiser, more pious. It's because salvation is on the line. The purity of the church and the salvation of the lost are the stakes in this war for the truth. So Jude is exhorting us in that truth. I mean, praise God for the message of Jude. 25 verses, 605 words in the ESV. That's that's good stuff. We can handle that. So my charge for us before we take communion is to engage in this as we go throughout this series for the next few weeks. Let's try to memorize Jude. Here's my copy. This is Jude, the whole thing. 
and I put it on, I wrote it on a note card to put tape on it because I'm classy. And, uh, and I wanted to stay a little bit waterproof, but it's 25 verses. I'm 10 verses in right now. I got hung up over the holidays, but let's commit to memorizing this or, or let's try memorizing it. 25 verses. If you, if you, if you extrapolate that out, 605 words in the ESV, that's like five pop songs. You all know five pop songs. So this is what I'm going to be doing these next few weeks is memorizing Jude, trying to get it hidden in my heart so that a contending for the truth just becomes what we do.